Okay, um, welcome everyone. Um, I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker, Professor Catherine Grant, who'll be talking to us about the video essay in contemporary um, film and screen studies and the turbulence caused by audiovisual material thinking. Catherine Grant is Professor of Digital Media and Screen Studies at Birkbeck. She was a pioneer of the audiovisual essay in film and moving image studies and has worked extensively on found footage, first person and essay form films. To date, she's produced hundreds um, of online videos that have appeared in, in various online journals and her videos have also been screened at film festivals and museums um, across the world. She's also written extensively about the theory and practice um, of making these essays. Um, and a number of you will probably be aware that she founded the website Film Studies for Free, uh, which is an extraordinary resource, I think, for everyone in, um, in our field. There's lots of different information to be found there. Um, so Catherine's talk today forms part of the Turbulence Public Lecture Series uh, here at the Institute of Advanced Studies. We're involved in convening a range of different talks and events um, around this theme. And I thought it would be particularly interesting um, to invite Catherine to speak to this theme, as I think um, her subject matter will show us how turbulence relates to issues of sort of practice and process and um, reflection, as well as maybe the more usual sort of thematic um, concerns related to turbulence that we usually think of um, when discussing film. Uh, so after Catherine's talk, we'll be joined by film studies specialists um, Dr. Roland Francois Lac and Dr. Uh, Annie Ring um, from UCL's School of European Languages, Culture and Society, who will commence and um, steer our, our Q&A session. Uh, so I'm delighted to hand over to Catherine, um, whose talk, as I mentioned, is entitled On the Video Essay in Contemporary Film and Screen Studies, or the turbulence caused by audiovisual material thinking. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you very much to Lucy and to the Institute of Advanced Studies. It's really lovely to be here, and thank you for all coming. It's a really nice audience. Um, so I think of all of the turbulence in the world right now, the kind I'm going to speak about this afternoon is very mild, um, almost imperceptible compared to some of the turbulence. And I, I kind of found this nice... PowerPoint slide with sort of mild turbulence on it as, as a result, um, kind of thermals, thermal currents, I think. Um, so this is what I'm going to talk about. Um, today I thought I'd do, I'm going to talk about this in the way I usually do, which is very much grounded in my own practice. Uh, so it's a particularly partial view of this uh, emerging field. Um, but I'm also going to say a little bit more about how to do it this afternoon. Um, and I don't often do that anymore. I used to do that all the time when I started talking about this. But it's kind of fun to revisit talking about how I work and how other people might want to take up this uh, form. Because um, although, as Lucy said, I've made loads of these little videos, um, uh, 10 years ago when I started, I had no ambition to be a filmmaker of any kind at all. I had no expertise. I've never had any training. I've only had the kind of training that anyone can have, which is YouTube videos. <laughs> I Google what I need to know and immediately find out how to do it and start doing it. And if it's the kind of thing I like to do, then I learn how to do it very quickly. If it's something I don't need to know how to do, I don't know how to do it. And it's a sort of very particular form of practice. It's certainly not professional practice. 
it is definitely amateur practice in all the senses of that word. Um, so that being the context, uh, I will talk a little bit about this in relation to making these videos, but also curating them, collecting them, publishing them, and thinking about them, theorizing the kind of new forms of practice the turbulent change that this practice has caused in, in my discipline specifically. And I'm going to talk about particular forms of turbulence around uh, the issues of technology that I just kind of touched on there, uh, skills and fair dealing and copyright, which I know um, are probably one of the most turbulent things and sadly also one of the most difficult things on the horizon for this form because you'd think we'd have won these rights, but unfortunately we haven't and it's kind of getting worse. Um, and I will talk a little bit about my basic workflow and techniques. Um, so I wanted just to begin with a, what for me is a fairly standard definition of this form. Um, I think people sort of know what video essays might be. Um, but for me, the particular ones that I'm talking about in film and moving image studies are creative and performative critical approaches to films as audiovisual artifacts, so films or screen studies, involving found footage remix practices. And these are primarily for made for and circulated on, in a, a context of online distribution. So in other words, they're a form that kind of, I guess, is the, um, one of the successors to the early form of, forms of vlogging, um, video blogging, uh, uh, in the pre-YouTube and pre-Vimeo platform days. So we're talking about pre-2004, 2005. It's with the development of those two platforms that these forms take off. They couldn't be possible before. They couldn't really be easily shared. Um, I think the non-linear video editing systems that made them possible too are much earlier, they're from the 90s, but, but the kind of sharing platforms are what made these forms take off and in a sense made them completely possible as forms of publishing, hence their kind of emergence as a scholarly form, I think. Um, these approaches include the use of digital video copying and editing practices to construct assemblages which is a very loaded word. It basically just means collections of things for me. You can um, add on any theorist you like who has a different take on it. Uh, but they're also, I guess, what more people more commonly understand as ways of composing audiovisual essays. That is to say, essays like written essays. Like being not very like, in my uh, humble opinion. Um, they are not like written essays at all. They are multimodal, multimedia, sensuous in different ways from writing. They require a different engagement um, with what you're putting out there as an argument, for example. Uh, and I would also add that they can usefully take place before, instead of, or in addition to research or presentational approaches, which are based solely on the seeking of words with which to describe or account for films or in which to contribute to screen studies. I'm gonna talk a little bit about this relationship with words uh, today because I'm going to show some videos that have different relationships to that uh, issue. Um, Audiovisual or videographic film studies um, is developing very quickly, uh, and I wanted just to give you some sense of the kinds of forms. I'm going to show you a variety of these this afternoon. Emergent forms and techniques. The most obvious one is, in a way, the one, the one you probably would imagine, um, which is somebody using a voiceover, over-edited together clips from films or television programs. Um, the, the form that's most akin to conventional forms of documentary, film documentary. Um, but actually not everybody uses voice. I tend not to in my work, and we can come back to that if you like. Um, I don't mind my voice, but for some reason I just don't really want to hear myself in video essays too often. So I tend, if I use words at all, I tend to uh, ground my practice in the second of these categories, videos that 
are composed of text commentary or quotation over film excerpts. Um, lots of these videos include altered motion experiments, and that connects them a little bit to the work of one of the foundational film scholars on that notion, which I'll come back to. Some of them take very internet-specific forms, coming from found footage practices of compilation filmmaking, but really quite different ones. Some of you may be very familiar with supercuts, rapidly edited together collections of a thing, a gesture, a piece of dialogue, a character, whatever, um, a kind of collection of things from lots of different films all at once. That's a great uh, um, genre of video essay for film studies in particular. Um, interfilmic between films and intrafilmic, lots of different things from one film. I tend to make a lot of the latter, lots of different things from one film, and I'll show you one of those. Uh, and then I've got a couple of subcategories down here as well. Um, sequential video comparative montage, that's the form of the basic supercut, one clip follows another and you kind of sometimes have a kind of morphing effect between the different items. But also a uh, very common form online, especially because it's so much easier to make these now, um, are split or multiple screen comparisons. So you have a, a simultaneous comparison of moving image material going on. And then finally, and perhaps most excitingly, and perhaps best suited to dealing with some of the greater turbulences in the world, is a, is a form called desktop documentary. Um, if you're interested in the sound of that, which some of you may be, it's using moving image screen capture techniques to capture the interface through which we might watch contemporary uh, moving image media and other media as well. And really brilliant leading practitioners of that would be Kevin B. Lee, who's one of the pioneers of the video essay form as well, Kevin B. Lee, and his uh, um, partner, Chloe, Galli Chloe galibert Lene. And I can give you, I'll spell that name for you later if you want, but they are absolutely the best people doing this, and there's a lot of their work online. Um, I mentioned that a foundational film scholar had talked about this issue of slowing motion down and how digital affordances have enabled us to do that in a much more kind of uh, widespread way. All of us have been able to do that, really since the advent of the VCR and the remote control, being able to pause an image. Of course, with the digital image and digital pausing and slowing, we have a much more pristine and clear image that enables all sorts of reflections and opening up a space that, first of all, Raymond Boulour and then Laura Mulby herself have talked about as the, the space of the pensive spectator. So Laura moved in her own work from a notion of the possessive spectator, the kind of fetishistic spectator who's drawn into the entertainment industry image, to this more distant spectator who can control the entertainment industry image and slow it and be able to perceive lots of different things. And I particularly love this quote because she sets that out in ways that I think are quite resonant for film studies, but she ends with this notion of personal reverie. And it's really that side of it that drew me in when I started making these. I thought I was gonna be making new forms of scholarship. It was gonna be really like brilliant. I'd be able to see things I couldn't see before. And actually what I found more often was I was feeling things. Maybe not that I hadn't felt before, but in ways that were defamiliarized and, um, and you know, maybe think a little bit more about feeling and connecting feeling and seeing, feeling and noticing uh, in ways that as a, you know, as a trained scholar in film studies, I hadn't really been encouraged to do. You're supposed to keep a scholarly distance, not get drawn into the wondrousness of the image or the horror of the image as well. Um, so quite a lot of scholars have been doing this. It really is a form that emerges from film criticism, however. 
Um, and I guess people like me started noticing this around 2006, 2007 with various film uh, magazine websites online, including the emerging streaming websites of art cinema and so on. They often had people making these to draw people in, in kind of film critical modes. Um, but we, and Christian Keithley, you may not be able to read his name there, um, one of the people who's written about this a lot um, and from the early days really, we're beginning to see the possibilities for us as film scholars. We, he, he, wrote, we, he wrote this in 2007. We film critics and scholars can now write using the very materials that constitute our object of study, moving images and sounds. But doing this demands rethinking conventional critical forms. Lots of experimenting must be done. And I think lots of experimenting has been done. And some of us are still working in this experimental mode, trying to kind of keep the range of options open across all of those different genres of video essays that I mentioned before, but also not wanting to codify or attribute too much value to one form over another because we're still in a, well, I don't think I will ever want to do that, but we're still in a stage at which leaving those options open is just allowing us to experiment and, and see kind of what happens, I guess. It's not really how we do our scholarship generally. Um, there's lots of discourse about this online now. I recommend the website on the left, which is, uh, if you Google audiovisual essay reframe, you will get a website I set up while I was working at the University of Sussex a few years ago. It hosts lots of, I think, really good essays about this, uh, many of them coming from a symposium that happened in Frankfurt um, in 2013, I think. Um, and also lots of how-to guidance. Um, some of it's a little bit dated because a couple of the programs that it recommends still work, but there are better programs. I'm going to tell you what those are this afternoon. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a really great place to go to find out how to rip things and copy things and edit things and lots of guidance about film studies. Sorry. And um, on the right, we have ex an example of how even our kind of most... Um, prestigious film institutions in the country are kind of involved in this form as well. The BFI and Sight and Sound have commissioned lots of video essays over the years, but they also run this annual poll, and it's a good way of just seeing all of the great video essays that were made last year that people recommended. So if you're interested in finding a whole bunch of things that are a little bit more varied than the ones I'm going to show you today, um, that's a good place to go. So I started making things back in 2009, and uh, as Lucy said, it was part of um, the ex explorations I was carrying out for this website, Film Studies for Free. Um, this was a website that was set up to kind of survey what was going on, on online that was of relevance to film scholars uh, and, te and television scholars too. Uh, and I made my first video essay, which is the most documentary-like of all of the ones I've made, just me and my voice over some edited-together clips. Um, uh, on Claude Chabrol's film Les Bonnes Femmes. I, I still really like this, it's really rough. Uh, the voiceover sounds incredibly tinny, but you know what? I actually came up with some things that I wouldn't have come up with if I had just been writing about the film. And, and in a way it was that experience of discovery, especially of feelings and weird moments in the film um, that kind of uh, was a bit like catnip to me and I never stopped. That same year I set up Audiovisual C another good place to go if you want to watch lots of these. We're still running this. It's a Vimeo group. So any video that gets added to uh, Vimeo that is like this kind of thing, using edited together clips of some kind and some film scholarly or critical purpose, me and 70 other curators press a button to add it to the group. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, some really excellent work is in there. 
Um, and I also kind of generally collect together my own work in lots of different places, uh, so it's not very difficult to see what I'm making. But I guess my proudest uh, moment came in 2014 when I gathered together with some colleagues in the US and now with a colleague in Italy to uh, form this website project, which is a peer-reviewed journal, uh, peer-reviewing video essay work. So if you make this as a film scholar or TV scholar, you can submit your work to us and we peer-review it. And it's innovative, not only because it publishes video work, but also because it uses open peer review. Uh, we, don't, we have two peer reviewers, but everybody knows everybody's names, and the peer reviews get published at the website alongside the work. It's scary stuff, and it's quite difficult to run um, because it, people are not used to open peer review, but we're teaching them. But the reason we did it like that, apart from a general commitment to openness, is that it's, a brilliant, it's been a brilliant way of generating discourse and understanding about this, these forms. So people might say, well, how on earth can this two-minute video be the equivalent of a 10,000-word article? Well, you know, the well, simple answer is it isn't. It's different. Um, but through the statements that the peer reviewers are writing, some sense of the scholarly value of, or critical value of the work emerges. So it's a great place to read about video essays as well as to watch them. Um, not everybody here will be interested in this slide, but some of you will. Yes, some of us are in, in the British Academy, and we're not, not the British Academy, but British Academia, <laughs> and we are making this work as part of our jobs and submitting it to the REF. So I did last time the Research Excellence Framework Audit that we have to do every so often, getting longer and longer periods, um, and it's been perfectly submissible and perfectly seemingly acceptable. Nobody has called me out on it yet. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the case that I'm not the only person submitting this sort of work. There's obviously lots of people in the UK submitting practice research generally, and this kind of work is that sort of thing, but it's also scholarly in a different way. So it kind of pitches itself often in between traditional scholarly written work on one hand and practice research as an established field on the other. We're kind of in a sort of scholarly practice middle somehow. Although, as you'll see, some of my work is very much like conventional practice research, whatever that is. So I wanted to show you um, one of my video essays as a whole, and it's uh, a, a video that I made, I think I made it in 2014, and it got published in 2016 alongside a very short written statement that isn't really about the video, it's more about video essays. Um, but people seem to like this one because it does have an argument. So I thought I would show it uh, as a good one to begin with. So this um, video has a lot fewer words in it than the first one I made, the one that I made in 2009, which was nearly 20 minutes long, me rambling on about this and that in Claude Chabrol's Les Bonnes Femmes. I don't need to or choose to deploy lots of my film scholarly knowledge in this one, partly because when I started making it, I didn't really have that film scholarly knowledge. This video records the, pro the real process of trying to work out what was happening with this sequence. So I kind of made, and it's actually a very good procedure for making a video. Um, begin with what you want to find out about something. Don't already know it and try to make a video about that. I literally made this video asking all of the questions that you see there. Now that doesn't mean it's a sort of artless piece of work of just me wondering what's going on. 
because it's framed, because there is some aesthetic framing that's going on here. I quite like this video because it's fairly subtle, but it begins with the epigraph. It begins with the quotation from the work of the psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion that I was just thinking about while I was trying to answer these questions. The, the, the sequence seemed to suggest this quotation, which I did know beforehand, to me, and it felt like the right move to make to begin with that liminal statement. Something that's quite hard, I think, the first time of viewing it to connect up with what you've seen, but the great thing about this video is people go back to it. It, doesn't, it, it discloses quite a simple thing about the film, but because of the way that the epigraph works, it's more like, and I, this is a slightly pretentious comment, forgive me, an essay film, which, as Laura Rascaroli has written, is about the art of gaps. It doesn't just present you with something that you get like that. Instead, its mise-en-scene, its mode of organization, leaves gaps for you to experience and perhaps try to join up in different ways as a kind of meandering spectator. So although it's only a five-minute piece of work, the beginning and also the ending, where I uh, overlay the, the scene I've already showed of the fish, this time with Mia's breathing from the beginning of the film, which you've also seen and heard, the title sequence, I'm making some weird point that the film, of course, is making much more subtly than me, but nonetheless, coming out after, as it does after this series of questions, it's an irrational ending that I quite like. So it sort of works in a way that I hope brings people back to think about it. Therefore, it works a little bit more like a piece of research than a piece of one-off film criticism. In, uh, but as I said, I, I did pr produce it as a piece of film criticism. Um, not as a piece of research. I actually also grounded that work in intense uh, study of um, screenshots from the film. I watched it on my phone. I remember doing this on the train. I had a digital copy of the film on my phone. And every time I saw something that made me think of containment, I took a screenshot. And I made a, a slideshow out of that. And for me, and I'm going to talk about material thinking um, in just a second, screenshots are as much a form of material thinking as video essays. When you take a screenshot, I don't know how many of you do this, you sometimes don't get it right. And you have to go back and do it again because it doesn't quite capture the exact moment that you want to capture. And that notion of the exact moment, what is that? This is a process of material thinking, of material handling of digitized uh, material. In the case of screenshots, obviously, it's still imagery, um, but nonetheless, it's graphic material from the film. So as I said, I kind of wrote about this film, and you can see how easy it is to publish this work in, in conventional film journals that have gra gravitated online, like this one, Film Criticism, which is a really old print journal, now has an online version. Um, and I can just embed my video there. Obviously, it has to remain online for me to do that. What is not really happening is websites are not hosting the video themselves, because we're talking about quite a lot of bandwidth. These are quite big files. But, but generally, because of the hosting sites, provided we abide by fair use and fair dealing, which I'll come back to, it's a fairly easy, um, a fairly easy method of publishing your work. Um, that video is pretty at pretty much at the explanatory end of the spectrum. It's got its mysteriousness, but nonetheless it asks some questions and it answers them, and does so in a way that you could probably hopefully walk away and summarize without too much thought. 
But a lot of what's happening, and especially my work, is less explanatory than that. It's at what Christian Keesley has called the other end of this spectrum, the poetic end, the experimental end, the weird end, and we are often very much inspired by uh, existing pieces of avant-garde cinema or found footage experimentation from the past. Um, so I wanted to show a bit of this work that corresponds to the dispositif of my work that a couple of people have written about, um, which often what Grant will set herself the task of collecting all the cuts or lap dissolves in a given film and then juxtaposing that with a musical track or a textual commentary. For her, the results of such audiovisual experiments have the proven potential to generate new knowledge in our screen studies field, with the proviso that the real challenge today is less to translate this knowledge back into the conventional, conventionally acceptable verbal or literary meta-language of description and theory than to value our discoveries in the very terms of and on the same level as the aesthetic and sensory properties of river, colour, texture, affect, and so on. And I think that's a very, very fair comment and one that I was very happy uh, to read. Um, so I'm going to play a piece that I didn't intend for scholarly publication. Somebody else later published it in a scholarly context, but I just published it at one of my blogs um, in a co with a sort of elliptical commentary about it, which was precisely such a collection of everything from a film. So let's watch this one. So this one again began with some genuine questions I had about the film, which was, if you know, In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai's brilliant film, it has, it's punctuated by these montage sequences in slow-mo with this repeated theme. So I just thought, wouldn't it be amazing to see what they all look like together? Um, so it kind of began with a real question that I had, and I actually found myself te te technically incapable of producing this video, and it was the first time I thought, oh my God, I'm going to actually have to learn how to properly edit in a proper pro program. I can't be doing this in iMovie anymore. I'll come back to uh, the, the programs you might use. Um, I couldn't do the beautifully produced uh, split screen, so I made a version of it in iMovie, but I asked someone else to make the proper middle section of this video, and they did a great job, Vinny's Clock. Um, and what it showed is things you can't, well, you can't easily tell by linear film studies, by watching each sequence one by one, because, it, well, you may not gather this again, it's one that invites repeated viewing. Remember, what views online, we want you to watch it as many times as possible. Um, but the more you watch it, you realize that each scene extinguishes itself as that sequence is over, and actually they're all different lengths, because if they were all the same, they'd all be playing at the end. So they, as they extinguish themselves, you can see that the longest sequence of the film with this music is actually the one in the end credits of the film and the other ones are varying lengths but it gives you a chance to see what's going on in a kind of less subjective fleeting way than just watching it properly as a film and also you get the sense that some of these uh, soundtracks in the sequences are actually mixed with lots of other sound there's weeping it's quite a lot of weeping again something you really couldn't tell if you were just watching it one by one and playing them all together and it just becomes even more melancholic than it does in a kind of linear version of the film so there's loads more things you can say about it but it's definitely a play on senses and form and color and you know, sound and the visual all at once. It's a very sensuous experience. It's also like a puzzle film, a, a film that doesn't give up its... Let's play one more time. No. Um, it, it doesn't give up its kind of riches immediately. It's sort of mysterious and hopefully draws you in. So I make these all the time. I'm not gonna play this one. I, I'll just begin it. Um, but it's uh, one where it, another kind of loop. This one, time coming from Ingmar Bergman's film. Don't worry, 
sorry, I'm not going to kind of make it, uh, all the sound levels are very varied on these pieces of work. Um, but this kind of idea of using the grid and the multi-screen form, for me, is very play-related. These are ludic forms. I, I'm really reminded every time I make one of those childhood games that you still sometimes get in Christmas crackers, those plastic things, where you have to kind of slide the square along and try and move it around. That's how it feels making this kind of work. It's a different kind of logic to one driven by meaning. It's driven by form, but ordering. It seems to bespeak something quite paradoxically because of course often I'm removing the films from their place in a sequence. It seems to say something about the sequentiality of film that I'm writing about. In fact, I'm writing a whole book about this right at the moment called um, Spatial Montage and Digital Cinephilia. Um, and it would never have come about without this work. It wasn't something I was separately interested in. It's come about because of what I'm finding as I'm working with things. And really from very early on, I started writing about this idea of material thinking. So pieces like the film, the film, the fish tank video, it tells me something about fish tank, but it also tells me something about material thinking. This idea of what happens when you use the audiovisual in a different way to study the audiovisual, rather than being at a distance from your object. So this is a, an online article that's all about that. Um, and in that article, I use quite a lot of Heidegger, uh, which other artist researchers in, ac in academia are also using. This is a quotation from one, a brilliant one called Barbara Bolt. Um, using Heidegger, she, she writes, for Heidegger, handling is a relation of care and concernful dealings, not a relation where the world is set before us knowing subjects as an object. So this idea of the care and concernful dealings is why I had to learn how to use pro video editing programs, because I couldn't be careful or concernful in the more limited program that I was using. I needed to have a space uh, and more affordances uh, to be able to do this even more carefully and even more concernfully. But I really do have that feeling. Sometimes my videos are deliberately rough, but it's not because of a lack of care or concern for the material, quite the opposite. It's, it's an experimentation with form. Um, and so going back to Mulvey and this idea of the pensive spectator, what this form does is very much takes you away from simply your eyes and mind working on something, and obviously your ears, to joining your hand, your eye, your ear, and your mind um, together. Uh, and Barbara Bolt has written about that too, noting that material thinking involves a particular responsiveness to or conjunction with the intelligence of materials and processes in practice. There's some things you can't do with these things some manipulations that just don't work. And it's the ones that do, you're, that you're seeking, obviously, that can often teach you things uh, in new ways about um, the material. So let's come back to turbulence. And we have a little passage now on how to and what the issues are, um, which I've kind of become very interested in again because fair dealing never seems to go away as an issue. So I'm gonna cover three things really quickly before concluding with one more video essay. Copyright, fair dealing, technology and skills, and number three, the most turbulent aspect, as far as I can see, the challenge to the established norm genres and workflows of written scholarship and ekphrasis. Ekphrasis being writing about films or writing descriptions of what you see in films rather than what we're talking about here. So fair dealing is the system of copyright exceptions that we have in the UK. In the US they're called fair use, in other places they're called different things. There's always some differences between these, and to be perfectly honest, the US has a much better system of this than us, a system that sets up a, a more certain space for people to be able to experiment with copyright. In the UK, you are kind of taking things in your own hands a little bit, because um, as one of the things in this list says, 
um, it's an arguable system. So you can do it in good faith, abiding by these norms, but somebody could still take exception to what you do and pick a fight with you, basically. But I would say at the outset that the worst thing that can happen generally is that they will take your work down, that the hosting platform will take your work down. Nothing worse than that. I, I've made 200 video, videos, I think, and only one has been taken down, and I should have guessed that that one would be taken down. I was risking something and pushing it a bit. And, and it just got taken down, and that was that. I could have fought it. I could have raised it with a website and say, actually, no, there's a scholarly purpose, because there was. But because it was the David Bowie song that they were particularly objecting to, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that, because they might just take this fight elsewhere. And I have a lot to lose, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but fair dealing are the series of exceptions that apply um, if uh, your work relates to research, private study, criticism, or review, or news reporting. So it's a bit like the ability you have within documentary filmmaking to use small samples of copyright, um, copyrighted works. A legal term used to establish whether the use of a copyright material is lawful or whether it infringes copyright. Um, these factors, I don't tend to pay too much attention to them myself, but as a responsible adult teaching you <laughs> some things about this, I'm going to tell you, um, please obey, <laughs> obey these. Um, d does using the work affect the market for the original work? Actually, I, I, kind of, I don't think my work does tend to have a problem with this one mostly. If a use of a work acts as a substitute for it, causing the owner to lose res revenue, then it is not likely to be fair. In other words, if you just put a copy of something up online in its entirety, don't do that. Um, the second one, I think, is more arguable. If, is the amount of the work taken reasonable and appropriate? Was it necessary to use the amount that was taken? Usually only part of a work may be used. And you can see how that one might be a bit more difficult to kind of quantify, because some works may just be two minutes long, and some works may be four hours long. How can you study the two-minute long piece without using quite a lot of it, for example? So these are kinds of questions. But the sensible thing is you kind of know if you're using it simply to replicate the, the material to benefit from it and sidetrack the fact that it's, um, sideline the fact that it's a copyrighted work. The last line is very important. The relative importance of any one factor will vary according to the case in hand and the type of dealing in question. The people who really worry about this, for, for very good reasons, are people who actually then sell their work. So found footage filmmakers who want to market their own work. Uh, and they have often work with lawyers who will work with them to minute by minute justify every frame of footage that is taken from others' work so that there's a legal defense waiting for any trouble. And that way they usually avoid it. And I'm thinking here of the filmmaker Charlie Lyon, who's made some great found footage works. And he and I participated in a brilliant event last year at Birkbeck called Fair Dealing. And I should have got the URL, but if you Google Fair Dealing Jarman Lab, Birkbeck, you will find a brilliant uh, audio recording of him talking about his experience of doing this as a documentary filmmaker that's just incredibly valuable. Um, sufficient acknowledgement is obviously important. You cannot take any of this work and not have the film and the author and the date and so on in the credits, so that's very important. But it's also important to know that while in the UK we have a lot of leeway in education, educational context being one in which you can do a lot. As soon as you move the work outside of the educational context, you sometimes have to worry a bit more. But currently, crazily, in the UK, it is illegal to rip a DVD. 
Okay? It is illegal to rip a CD, for that matter, if you still have those. Okay? So it's just illegal to do that. It wasn't illegal when they changed the law in 2014, but immediately it was challenged by the music industry, and unfortunately, it's now illegal again to rip, rip those things. It was kind of not illegal before, but it wasn't legal because it hadn't been legislated for, anyway. Um, another really interesting exception, though, is parody, caricature, and pastiche. And I just throw this one up here because I think we're not doing enough as scholars with parody, caricature, and pastiche. I've begun to do a bit more remixy stuff in my work. We can study things through parody, caricature, and pastiche, and more importantly, our students can. Our students who, unlike us, well, actually, looking out at you, you're all these, you're all this character, digital natives. Um, you know, I'm not a digital native, I'm definitely a digital immigrant. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, people are able to copy and remix all the time. So working with the idioms of your students uh, is, is, I think, very handy. Uh, and they're very familiar with forms of comedy and so on. But of course, to pull off a really good remix or pull off a really good parody or meme, you have to really understand something deeply. Uh, in order to be able to make it work culturally and uh, as, uh, amongst its audience. So these are all interesting things. I've moved into uh, skills and technology here. Yes, this is a very expensive field. If you're going to invest in MacBook Pros and Final Cut Pro, or even more expensive, Adobe Premiere, which are all of the video editing pe uh, programs that people tend to use. But there are loads of really excellent free programs, um, DaVinci Pro being one of them for video editing, um, that you can find. And TechRadar, I have to say, is the best. I don't have any... any um, money coming to me for promoting the tech radar site, as I seem to all the time, but it's really great for showing the latest uh, free programs that you can find online that work for various things. These are um, two of the essential activities, I think, of the video ed essayist, editing, obviously, but also screen recording. Desktop documentary relies on screen recording uh, software. There's tons of it that's free. I mean, even QuickTime on your computer, if you have a, an Apple computer already, uh, is handy. There's one slide I forgot to put in, and I'm going to give you the software anyway, and that's ClipGrab. ClipGrab.org is a free video downloader. You can download anything from any video hosting platform. It's the one that always works. It's free, but you can donate to support the, the platform. Um, so that's another essential thing. Um, challenge to the norms. Um, one of the most important ones is that, of course, ekphrasis, the written description of material in another medium, is an essential skill to teach our students in the humanities. I'm certainly not arguing that it should be less central, um, but of course it's not the only skill. And when you start teaching work in this form, you're challenging that. This is of course a form that relies on writing differently. Writing is in all of these videos in one way or another, um, and it's often in the descriptions that we write about them and the research statements. But in fact, this, does, this form does displace the centrality of writing. So many of us doing it are intrigued by that because we were trained to use writing, not to use audiovisual methodology. We're trying to think about what does it mean? What are the questions, equivalents, and so on? So there is turbulence involved in this. I don't tend to get confronted, maybe today will be an exception, with hostility or negativity about this. In fact, I get more from people who think I'm not being radical enough. Um, anyway, 
as I'm sure they're right. Um, but, but this question of what we teach in the, humanit the humanities is challenged by this. Because, of course, I'm talking about film and moving image studies where there's a certain naturalness to using audiovisual material. It's what we're studying. But what about those subjects where it's not what is being studied primarily? Should we use video essays? and some of these experimental techniques and multimodal techniques in those subject areas. And of course, there's lots of people thinking about that um, too. For me, I just know that the, not only is this an addictive activity, but it's just so different and so involving to be working with this interface than with a blank sheet of paper, frankly, okay? This, this can be empty, this interface, where we might import our video footage, drag it bits down onto the timeline, create our split screens over in the, the viewer there. But it, it's not really empty for long. Working with found footage is a completely different form of anxious investigation than it is when you've just got to try and invent the words from scratch. So that's a challenge, a kind of an interesting piece of turbulence that I wasn't expecting. The idea of using technology in this way. Well, if you think about it, though, certainly I think about it this way. I wrote my PhD, I think I was the first generation to write my PhD on a word processor in the, in the UK around the late 80s. Um, I remember having to type all my undergraduate essays up or handwrite them. The, the vast shift between those composition modes I experienced. So this, this one is another vast shift, but these are happening to us all of the time. And it kind of thinking about what they mean is, of course, part of material thinking. How do we study composition? How do we study creation? How do we study essayistic activities generally? But for me, above all, the audiovisual side of this is why I'm so committed to it. I think this uh, writing is great, and I still need writing, and I still use writing. It's very good for long-form argumentation in a way that I don't think these, uh, these essayistic works are as good at. Uh, but these works are brilliant at making audiovisual studies audiovisual. Tautology is always nearby for me. Um, that is to say, they are based on sensuous methodologies. They're time-based methods, like our medium. They're multimodal. They are great for looking at the intertextual uh, notions of film uh, meaning and the intratextual ones, how a film or a TV show can make meanings within its form. Um, they are both cognitive and they're affective and aff affectual. They are spatial, especially the one I'm going to show you in a minute. They are audiovisual, audiovisual, and I think even the ones I've shown you, you can see how they're also, they're responding some, to something about the transnational, tra the, the kind of global, the global, local, and transnational nature of cinema and television as forms that communicate in lots of different like, uh, verbal languages as well as uh, audiovisual ones. So I'm going to finish with um, a new video. Um, some of you have seen it. This has taken me oh, since 2011 to make, and it's five minutes long. Um, I made a version of it in 2011, which was 25 minutes long. And it, um, I don't think anybody in this room attended. It was, it was shown at a symposium on the filmmaker whose film it treats, Lucrecia Martel. And it was, again, beginning with a real set of questions about the film that I tried to answer or explore in the, co in the context of a, of a film. Uh, and the 25-minute long version was okay. It went down well at the conference. I didn't quite finish it, which was interesting. I sort of got, you know, how sometimes with a conference paper you could say, this is a work in progress. Well, that video essay was definitely a work in progress, but I didn't do anything to it for years. I kept going back to it thinking, I wish I could finish this. There's an argument in here that I really need to revisit. 
And I showed it to Kevin B. Lee, the video essayist I uh, mentioned earlier, and he hated it. He just thought, no, this is terrible. You've just got to blow this up and start again. And after I'd stopped crying, um, I, <laughs> I agreed with him. And, and, it, and, and so in a way, what I had to do, I realized, was make it more like an online video rather than the scholarly long-form argument that was very sequential and patient um, of the first version. And I found uh, a, a way of doing that through um, paying attention to some experimental art by uh, a, a guy who uses uh, found footage filmmaking as well as photo montage techniques, and that's Mark Rappaport. And I saw some of his recent films in which he really used a photo montage technique, a collage technique that he was using in his still image work as well. And I was just so wowed, and even more wowed when he said that he had learned to do this himself in, in Final Cut Pro, which is the program that I use. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So I went to YouTube and found out how. Um, it, take, it took a lot of work, and it still took a few more years to finish. Uh, but I finally found a form that gave me the ending that I had also been looking for, and I will close with this.